0: you're listening to shoreditch radio
1: shoreditchradio.co.uk
2: hello and welcome to this week's licorice all sports on shoreditch radio coming up on the show this week the world cup reaches its conclusion we look ahead to some mouthwatering semi-finals or will they be cagey goalless ball and uh, we also talk wimbledon is the old guard here to stay or are we looking at a new revolution in tennis we look ahead to the first test for England against India, while trying not to insult any players on air. And as the Tour de France comes to town, we look at the growing popularity of the sport. All that and plenty more coming up on Licorice All Sports. Hello, hello, this is Licorice All Sports, this is Shoreditch Radio. My name's Jamie, and in the studio this evening, I've got Jim.
1: Evening.
2: Evening, evening. You? you're all right. Yeah, I'm very well. Very well. And we've got a guest in the studio this evening, haven't we? We've got Tom Jackson. Very good evening. Very good evening. Good to see you. it's, yes. been, a, it's been a while it personally, has been but little your little. first time in the Shoreditch Radio Studios and the uh, first of many, I hope. Um, we're going to make a start, and we're going to talk World Cup. It's um coming to its conclusion. It's it's semi final time. Uh, by this time, that we're recording on a Monday evening. By this time, this comes out. Uh Should be looking forward to Germany against Brazil Tuesday night, and Holland Argentina. On Wednesday night. Now, what has been your your highlight of the last week? So we've had the conclusion of the second round matches, and we've had all the quarterfinals over the weekend as well. Has there been uh, one match or one moment in particular which you feel? I mean, I'm going to start you guys off. I'm going to I'm going to actually say one of the most exciting matches I've seen is Germany Algeria. Now it was nil nil for ninety minutes, and then it went to extra time. And Germany got the winner in the end. But it was such an open game. It was such an end-to-end match. It was so fun to watch. And Algeria, you know, there the are no pushovers. You know, the, you're not going to get, you know, four nil spankings in, in the last 16 of, of a major tournament because, well, they're in the last 16. They deserve to be there. It was a fantastic match. Uh, and Germany, well, they they just about were the better side. But, yeah, Algeria had plenty of chances there to, to put them away in normal time. They could have gone through there. It could have been so different. And obviously, Germany... Beating uh, France in the quarterfinals as well in a fairly dire one 0 win, but uh, a win nonetheless. But that was that was my that was my match actually, my match for the last week. I think
0: people have been quite surprised by the uh, the quality that some of these supposed lesser sides have shown. I mean, Algeria really surprised me and Brahimi, who came on in about the sort of sixty fifth minute for them, um, who, who Tottenham are supposedly interested. in. I thought you know looked like a fantastic playmaker. They had they had enough to keep Germany stretched throughout that game. Um, you know, it was only in the last 10-15 that Germany managed to get away and obviously all pinched the second at the end as well. But Yeah.
2: Tom, what have you made of, of Germany this year? I mean, have, have they looked uh, as strong as they have in, in previous years? Have they deserved to, to come through?
1: Uh, I think if you look at the final four left, there's no outstanding World Cup team left. There's no great World Cup team. They've all got their flaws. But if I had to pick one of the four that... We're still in the competition that were the most complete. I'd probably put Germany top of that list, um, and I think that's that's been the, the the key for them is that team aspect is is really coming through. There's been a few issues. I think Larm in central midfield probably hasn't worked, um, but he's got away with it. Uh, and the defence is still not their strong point, but well, it's but yeah. they're organised. And like I said, when you put them up against a Brazil, as they, they will do in the semi-final, or in Argentina, or a Netherlands, all four teams have got flaws. But I think out of the four, Germany have got the least flaws, which actually probably makes them favourites at this point.
2: Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Um, I mean, particularly with, with Brazil's um, uh, difficulties in looking at the players they're missing for the semi-final, uh, you'd probably put Germany favourites for that match. Um, I don't think anyone predicted Netherlands to come this far. Um, and Louis van Gaal's done a, a great job in getting through with a, a fairly unfashionable uh, Dutch side. You know, you usually expect so much flair. I mean, they've only really got Robin and Van Persie, the, the two four men, which they're kind of relying on. But, yeah, Germany, despite being without people like Marco Reus, you, people forget he was out of the, the whole tournament. If, if some, you know, England or or yeah, a lesser nation had, had lost a player of his quality for the tournament, we would be lamenting that still to this, <laughs> this day. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're looking strong and uh, I, I've i got a funny feeling that they'll do Brazil tomorrow night. Um, Brazil missing, of course, Neymar with his injury and, and Thiago Silva picking up another booking. Brazil as well. I mean, they've come through to the semi-finals. I thought there may be an upset against Chile or Colombia, but they managed to get through those two games. Um, with relative ease. I mean, obviously, it took penalties for the Chile match. Um, it was fairly even. But against Colombia, they uh, they played a, a very pressing game and very... Uh, well, pressing's one word. Thuggery is another word as well. Um, but they they got through. They got through those matches um, against two potential dark horses for the tournament. And they've they've kind of grown into it a little bit. They've grown... Uh, into into being the hosts and, and this all this pressure. They're, they're kind of lapping it up, really, aren't they?
1: That was always to be expected, though. If you, you look prior to the World Cup, Brazil hadn't played a competitive game really in earnest outside of the Confederations Cup for four years yeah. because they didn't need to qualify. And I think that was always going to be the case coming into the World Cup, was once they got in a competitive environment, regardless of how poor they've actually been, they were always going to grow, grow as a team as the competition advanced. Neymar is a huge blow. I think Thiago Silva is probably an even bigger blow. He is arguably the best centre-back in the world at the moment. But you saw in the in the quarter-final just signs of Hulk starting to come to the fore again. Uh, he's going to be vitally important against Germany. If they can put and be physical, that's what they've got to be. It, yeah, this, yeah. this Brazilian team isn't the flair of 70 and and the Pele's and the Ronaldo's, it's just not, they don't exist but the likes of Oscar Hulk, they've got to just really be quite physical, it worked against Colombia and that's where their chance comes but I'm not surprised to see Brazil at this stage and I'm also not surprised if they were to make to the final because I think they are now growing and there's a, a sense of anticipation and whether you believe in coincidences or not, there's a, there feels a sense of fate about it as well. The little things that have happened outside of the Neymar injury that have happened is a, is a huge suggestion mm. that if you believe in those type of things, Brazil will be lifting that trophy in America now. I
2: think my only issue with that is that they've got a striker in Fred who has done nothing in this tournament and he's got to do something in the semi-final if particularly that Neymar he's going to be their, their focal point up front and he just doesn't I mean yeah I don't play as a striker or anything like that but he doesn't get into the positions which you feel he should do and it's I just find it incredible that Brazil have got so far yeah without somebody who's leading the line playing any near decent football indeed I mean you mentioned Hulk um has definitely been one of their
0: more um you know exciting players to watch but he's also got it, he's been the man who has got himself into those positions certainly in that game on on Friday night I thought he was excellent in getting behind the defense um which is exactly, you know Fred hasn't been doing that hasn't been getting into the right positions um but he is you know he's almost sort of quite you know untypical of a Brazil side if you're talking about the the sort of flair they've shown in previous decades you know he's this big bustling midfielder but he has got you know so many qualities to his game which kind of lends themselves to the way they they're trying to play at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um I think if they you know they need to get him on the ball
2: as much if not more than they did against Colombia. Well they can uh, they may change their shape a little bit for the for the German game particularly with that Neymar they may bring in someone like Ramirez um and and yeah try and try and fashion that front three and bring I mean Luis Gustavo will be back as well as, as the holding player. Uh he was missing for the Colombia match. And as well Dante um the center half he'll come in for uh, for Thiago Silva, by Munich centre half, um, still decent. <laughs> you know, it, 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 they've got surprisingly. It, it's weird. They've in in David Luiz and Thiago Silva. They've got the two most expensive centre halves in the world, and Brazil are just not known for their yeah you know, defensive capabilities. Yet they got two of the best centre halves in the world and goal scoring centre halves. Well, of course, uh, both of them got a goal against Colombia. Um, David Luiz was a little bit special, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, what do we make of uh, the... Ch- so, I mean, you think Germany might do it, Tom? Uh, uh, if
1: I actually had to pick a team... Which you do. Uh, I'd actually... <laughs> even though I think Germany are probably the most complete team, you cannot ignore the Messi factor and Argentina at the moment. What he is doing is reminiscent of what Maradona did in 86 uh, d- d- by carrying that team through. Now Higuain comes back in. He's a big... Big boost to that side. But everything that's been good about Argentina going forward is about Messi. Now, they haven't conceded many goals, and you just know, having watched Messi throughout this tournament, that once a game, he is going to produce something that could be the difference. Netherlands, I don't think, have the defensive capabilities to deal with him. They probably, going forward, like to rob and can give them a good game. But if they don't know how to contain Messi then I think you're looking at, I would say, now an Argentina-Germany final. And I I, I just think Messi Messi is the one. Messi is the one that holds the key to the tournament. Much like Neymar for Brazil, if Neymar had been fit, it is Messi. And if they do get to the final, you can't ignore that it's as close to a home World Cup final as they're going to get. There's hundreds of thousands of Argentinians now in Brazil. And it will almost replicate what it would be for Brazil if they were in the final.
2: Yeah, you make a good point as well. Um, Interesting, by the way, uh, Netherlands not having the defence to cope with it. Um, Ron Vlaar, the Villa centre-half, is uh, doubtful with an injury for Wednesday's game. And who'd have thought a World Cup semi-final would hinge on the fitness of Ron Vlaar? What would you make, Jim? What would you make of the the four remaining sides and and their chances? I'm with with you. I mean, I
0: think... Germany have found ways to to deal with problem players. You know they put Portugal away and kept Ronaldo quiet, and obviously had a had a plan to do that. Um, I think you know they set they set up pretty well. Watching that game on on Friday night with Brazil, I actually thought there were at times where they looked they allowed themselves to be stretched in a game which they were almost controlling. Um, you know for large periods of that game, and I think Germany will be better than Colombia at exploiting that. Um, so I, I do think if there's a potential banana skin for Brazil, it, it is Germany. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd personally like to see. I, I don't know. Although it was it was great theatre on Friday night, you know, you can't deny that the atmosphere within that stadium must have been, you know, unbelievable to to withhold. But um, you know, I, I think Germany have got got it in them to do it personally.
2: Okay, I'm still saying Argentina. By the way, I think. Um they'll have enough to put the Netherlands away. And in the final, whoever it is, I think they will pull. It'll be a bit of a shock, I think. Yeah, Germany and Brazil, whoever makes the final, will potentially be seen as favourites over Argentina. Um, even though, like you say, Argentina will be a home home World Cup final, essentially, for them. But I still think that Germany, like you say, a more complete side. Um, but Argentina, it seems like it's got the messy factor. It's got, I mean, Di Maria, who had a... Up and down game, um, but Higuain as well. You, you've just got this
1: wealth of talent. Just, just a point on the Argentine thing as well as I think there was an expectation they would be at this stage, yeah. But yeah. no one's really talked about them. Well, They've the almost thing. gone. They have almost gone under the radar, and suddenly they're there in a the semi-final, and yet people still aren't really talking about them. All the talk is about Brazil. All the talk is about Germany and Holland because of what Van Hal did in the quarter-final. Argentina. There's been no real world media pressure, and well, Messi, like I say,
2: it's what um, it's interesting because I mean they they came through the group and then you look at the draw they had um, in the in the last sixteen the quarterfinals. I knew they kind of get to the quarterfinals without really getting out of second gear. I mean they they beat uh, Switzerland one nil after extra time, very late goal in extra time. They beat Belgium one nil as well. Um, and it does remind me a little bit of Spain. Spain in 2010, they won all of their knockout rounds uh, 1-0, all the way through to the final. Every match was won 1-0, and they had a fairly innocuous group match, uh, group stage as well. I mean, they even lost their first game against Switzerland in 2010, but you know, they got out of it, and nobody was really looking ahead to them because they were like, yeah, we're going to be there. We're going to be there or thereabouts. But, you know, beating uh, Switzerland, beating Belgium, then beating Netherlands, I mean, it would be a big game. Both of these, I mean, both of these games are huge, both former World Cup finals um, matchups, And it's also, by the way, the first year that Brazil and Argentina both made the semi-finals in the same tournament. Um, so you might say it's destined for them to meet in the final, but I think Germany have something to say on that. Um, OK, which, which game do you... Re- I mean, if you only had to pick one, which game would you really want to watch of the semi-finals?
1: I'd probably actually... I just think... I'd probably go for um, the Argentinian game. I just think there's a, a, a greater chance that better football will be played in that game. Uh, I just I, uh, Germany are going to set up in a disciplined way. They're not going to come out, pass and move the ball around. And it'll be interesting to see how Brazil cope with that, really. We saw they were quite ruthless, tough against um, Colombia and, and particularly James Rodriguez. So from a purely footballing perspective, I think the likes of Robin going up against Messi, Di Maria going forward, that looks to be a more open game, a more fluid attacking game for me. Okay. Jim? Um, well, actually, I'm,
0: I'm really looking forward to, to Brazil-Germany. I think, you know, we've mentioned the players that are going to have to come in and fill the gaps that have been been left by injured and suspended players. And I think that battle at the back between Dante and the German front line is going to be, is going to be pretty telling. I think he's... Obviously, playing at Bayern Munich week in, week out, those players will know a lot about him about his Indeed, strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, yeah. If you remember, against Real Madrid, he didn't know what day it was. And I think this is going to be a huge challenge for that Brazilian defence. David Luiz has actually been pretty pretty effective there. And he, he does often
2: get criticised by his defensive capabilities. He's been outstanding, David Luiz. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a, you love to hate him at times. Uh, some people just love him. Some people just absolutely despise him. Um, I moments like the other. Night, I flicker right? between the two, but yeah, it he just he's just fantastic and, and he's like you say, one of the, he's been solid at the back as well. It's not just been a case of piling forward or, or trying to get a, a you know, scoring fantastic free kicks or anything. He has been solid and not given anything away, which is what I quite unlike him really. Was it
0: Gary Neville describing him as a, a FIFA player, you know, he wants to wants to try and do everything? Um but he's he's done done the simple things very well and produced those moments which we'll all remember like that goal
1: on Friday night. Mm. He's afforded that though, because of Silver. Silva sat there at centre back who is the linchpin and controls it, allows Luis to go forward in that role. Plus when you do have the likes of Ramirez playing in that holding role, Polino has been quite reserved all considering. Luis has got free reign to do that. And I think it it will be interesting to see how it changes when Silva isn't there tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, it would be, I mean, it, again, it's whether Dante has the same
2: uh, discipline, has the same skills as, as Thiago Silva to be able to do that. Uh, the fullbacks as well, um, interesting to see Micon start in the quarterfinal. Um, I don't know if Danny Alves was injured or something like that, but um, um, it, Danny Alves and, and Marcelo on the other side as well, they've been fantastic fullbacks and they've afforded, um, yeah, they've, they've helped the defense be as solid as they are as as good as they are going forward they are two of the best um defensive fullbacks as well as attacking fullbacks so just all-round play um okay i think i think we, we anything else you want to cover do you want to cover actually let's talk tim Krull at the weekend against costa rica um what did you make of his in your face tactics i've I liked never it. seen anything I liked like it. it i mean you can say oh it's a bit a bit unfair it's a bit of gamesmanship going on but i like that i mean it's it's a high pressure environment so much pressure on individual players uh, taking the penalty and trying to save the penalty as well. Um, yeah, it's There's been some not? phenomenal managerial calls from from Van Gaal. I know they're being highlighted now because you know yeah, a few I of mean, them the, have paid off. But the, the Van Persie one, where he took Van Persie off, I didn't think that that was a huge call. I mean, it was a tactical change, and you say he's not afraid to. But you know, he's he's the manager. He can he can take players off, and it obviously worked against Mexico in the quarterfinals. Little unusual, I have to say. Um, given that I don't think the number one keeper—I can't remember his name—but I don't think he was really aware because he seemed a little. No, he said he off. purposely
0: didn't let the. Sillison. You know, yeah, uh, okay. didn't Cilson. let him know because it would obviously, you know, ruin or affect his um, preparation. But Tim Crook knew of the plan. Okay, um, but he's—you he's, know—we've we've seen him save
2: save penalties on a regular basis for Newcastle, so. Yeah, his do record. Apparently, it's, uh, they were saying uh, when when it happened, they said it's it's only saved two out of twenty penalties for Newcastle. So not think? that regular basis. So, no, on. not really. But uh, obviously, he'd seen something in training, or he thought it was a good plan, and it worked. Um, yeah, it saved two penalties, didn't he? But, uh, what do
1: you make of it, Tom? I think uh, I I don't have a huge amount to say or to add to what you had. I just think it for a Manchester United fan, it bodes very well that. Van Hull isn't afraid to make those calls. We all know he's never been afraid to make it, and he is quite arrogant and, and very egotistical in the way he approaches things. And I'm sure if they win the World Cup, he'll he'll come out with something outrageous. But I think f- having seen what Manchester United fans went through last year with Moyes. I think it's totally different going into this season. Now Van Gaal will not be afraid to make those difficult, hard mm. calls. And one, that's going to gain the respect of the dressing room. And two, a lot of it is going to pay dividends on the field. So I think the only thing I can add is if you're a Man United fan, you've got to be really excited with what he's done with an average Netherlands team. Let's not beat around the bush. They are average bar, probably Robin. Van Persie hasn't been on his game for a season. Uh, Schneider's not done anything Schneider, in four years. No, yeah. Huntelaar is in and out of the Bundesliga. A lot of injuries at Hamburg. So for him to turn this team and mould this team into a place where Dutch fans would have taken a round of 16. They wanted mm. to get out of the group, but round of 16 would have done... Seriously, while well, that they were going to leak too many goals, which Australia proved you could do and open them up. So, for what he's achieved, that's got to excite Manchester United.
2: Has indeed, as well. And uh, it'd be interesting to see who they add to their uh, their side uh, once he returns. Because I mean, I think it's going to be as soon as next week he'll be working with uh, Manchester United in preseason. Uh, will not dwell on domestic football too much because uh, we've got plenty to get through in other sports as well. Um, okay, we're going to move on. We're gonna we're going to move to Wimbledon. We're going to move to tennis. Uh, what a final! What a men's final! men's singles final on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, two of the two of the greats, five setter. We haven't had a five setter since 2009. Um, Djokovic comes out on top, uh, probably probably deserved in the end. Um, Federer did well, but he was maybe a, you know sort of struggling at the end, trying to sort of hold on uh, to to even par in the in the fifth set. But what a what a make of the game! Fantastic tournament. It was just. Um you run out of superlatives
0: to to describe someone like Federer you know um, people have been talking about his supposed decline but the way he fought back from that initial championship point was was absolutely monumental I I really you just you could not you know bring yourself to think that he was going to do that Um, and I think it was one of the the first times in the tournament um, that Djokovic really sort of showed some showed some cracks but he's got enough you know physically and you know mentally he's always got enough to come through it seems but well, I think he's lost five out
2: of his last six grand slams before this. He had, yeah, he won on a Final, awful so. run of form. That's I think that's part of the reason he brought in Becker, if I'm right uh big show of relief when say. it you know, it finally finally happened. But yeah, it's one yeah. one we'll
0: remember for years.
2: But um yeah, I mean Djokovic he's he's almost robotic at times, isn't he?' He's, the way he plays, you know, he will he will conjure up just things which you almost couldn't believe were possible. Um just the angles and and the way he gets his shot back so quickly as well. I think a lot of people um, don't really give Djokovic the credit he he probably deserves because he's not you know this flamboyant uh, style like a Nadal or he's not so elegant across the court. But he is um, he's he's a fantastic player and he's won seven Grand Slam titles and and probably more to come. I'd say.
1: Well, he he is undoubtedly the probably the greatest returner the game has seen in the men's game. Returner to. I'd actually slightly disagree with you both. I, I I don't think it was a great tournament from a men's perspective. OK. And I wouldn't say it's going to go down as an all-time classic final. I wouldn't put it ahead of Nadal Federer 07, uh, Federer Roddick 09, or going back your you McEnroe's Borgs. I don't think it quite reached the pinnacle. The only time it did was in that fourth set where he came from 2-5 down reeled off those games to come back in. But it just didn't quite hit the crescendo then. The, the fifth set just dropped off slightly. So for me, don't get me wrong, it it, it it was a good tournament. But would it be an all-time great? Probably not for me. Um, Federer, I, 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 he's in a weird place now. He, I think everyone wanted him to do it, become the oldest Wimbledon champion. I wouldn't have been surprised to potentially see him ride off into the sunset if he'd won his eighth, got the Wimbledon wins record outright on his own. His 18th slam, end of the season, say, I've got now four kids, two sets of twins. I've done enough now. He is only 32. But I think the problem he he had here was that he got to the final having not really come up against anyone. I think the longest match was two and a half hours. And it showed once he got past that two and a half hour barrier, his age started to show. He couldn't quite keep pace with Djokovic. Yeah, and, yeah. and I don't think he would really have got tested. Like I said, Rejnic didn't show up in the semi-final like I thought he would have done. Uh, and Novak got a fairly easy run bar Chilic to some yeah, extent. Yeah, yeah. So actually, from a, a British perspective, I think Andy Murray really needs to kick himself because he would have beaten both of those players on the evidence of yesterday and probably in four sets, so I think it's a big opportunity missed. what will interest me next year um, is Nadal because next year the extra week comes in between yeah, the French and exactly. Wimbledon
2: that transition from clay to, to grass
1: exactly and and what you you've seen with Nadal is it takes him two or three games to adjust to the grass courts now an extra week re- week for him means that he should be in position next year to really make a stronger challenge and the courts aren't representing clay but you can slide a lot more which suits his game we know he's heart of a lion so I think everyone talks about uh, Dimitrov coming through Rejnic coming through uh, Kiragos coming through but there's a hell of a lot of tennis left in those top four yeah, I mean, halfway through the
2: week, when you know Nadal had lost, Murray had lost, and then you had Djokovic and Federer both are set down in the, in, the, in their in their quarterfinals, and you thought, hang on a minute, are we seeing like the the transition here, a new era of tennis? But no, the 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 two um the two greats come through in the end, and they've still got enough. But I think the fact that people aren't as afraid to play these big names anymore. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're two hundredth in the world you're not going to give yourself much of a chance against against Djokovic or, or Nadal or someone like that. But, yeah, if you're in the top 30, say, you know, people are, are prepared to take the game to these players. Um, admittedly, like you say, Reynich didn't turn up in the semi-final. Um, but, you know, Cilic, Berdic has has done it in the past. Varenka has won a Grand Slam this year. Um it, I mean, it, it's just looking at the golf, um, when you look at Murray's now 10th in the world. Yeah. And I, you've got all these other players sort
1: of in and around there. I, I, I don't particularly think that Murray ranking is necessarily accurate. Well, you've got to bear in mind... No, is there's a, a lot of injuries. It, it is a lot of injuries, but you've got to bear in mind the way the ranking system works. It's all about depe- defending the points you won at the tournaments last year. Mm. So, so Murray he's lost Ma- yeah, yeah, Wimbledon Ma- points. Yeah. So Murray was always going to go... Heavily down in rankings unless he retained here. So I, I don't think you can read really overly too much into the rankings. I said, Murray, for me, through the first four rounds until he came up against Dimitrov, played tennis reminiscent of Federer in his pomp at Wimbledon. Indeed, yeah. he, he spanked the players off the court. And that's why it made it strange that that performance against Dimitrov came when it did. So I, I, I think you can really expect Murray to to bounce back he's got to get the coaching situation sorted Muresmo I think needs to be given time uh, to to bed in but I think come um, the US Open with a proper injury free period we know he's good on the hard courts of Flushing does Meadows like, yeah, does Argu- like arguably actually a better surface for him than the grass as long as he can pick up some points and this is this is where the rankings do come into play is he needs to pick up some points now before the draw of the US Open because otherwise he's going to face a very tough task once he gets to the quarters because mm. he'll be facing someone in the top four bracket very, very earlier on than he should be. So uh, for me, I think the hard court season now is going to be interesting for Murray, but I think he's in a position where he can really capitalise. People saying, "Well, oh, is it a one and done? I don't think it is. It's the same as Djokovic. Jim mentioned it lost five out of six. Mm. In 2011, Djokovic was all but invincible. And this could be the start of it again. He just needed to get over that that hump. He And he's got past that point. It's a huge mental thing removed from him now. So just rounding it back, I think the top four, and I still call them the top four rankings or not, are going to be hard to beat, certainly for the next 18 months or so. We're still, I think, a little bit away from being able to, say, a Dimitrov, a Rejnic, are going to mature in time to be able to win a Grand Slam. And I'm sure we're about to come onto the women's game, but it's the same thing that players now are maturing later. We went through a period 10 years ago when Sharapova won Wimbledon where players matured very young, 18, 19. Now, the maturation point is more 22, 23, 24. Mm. So I think, you look at some of those players now. like likes a rare niche, can hit serves at 150 miles an hour comfortably. He's still a couple of years away from being the completely rounded player where he could be challenging a Djokovic and Nadal and Moe over five sets consistently.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, with, with Moe, sorry.
0: sorry, yeah. I'm just really interested to get your thoughts on on you know what flaws in his game were opened up by Dimitrov because as we say, he seamlessly passed through those early rounds and you know was playing. Probably some of the best tennis we've seen from him at Wimbledon. But what did what flaws did Dimitrov open
1: up? His biggest flaw is the second serve. And when you are in a Grand Slam over five sets and your first service percentage isn't good, that second serve can be attacked. And listening to Pat Cash, listening to David Lloyd over the fortnight of Wimbledon. They could not understand why more players don't attack that second serve, step in off a baseline and hit winner after winner against Murray because he's sending it down at 80, 85 miles an hour and it's been sat there to be hit. And that's what Dimitrov did. Dimitrov attacked that second serve. Now, if it had gone past three sets, I don't think Dimitrov would have won. I think we saw it with Djokovic that as soon as he got taken past the three-set margin, he struggled to maintain consistency. And that, I think that's the difference. So I think that's where Mo needs to work on. And, and it would be no surprise to me if he actually went and employed someone purely about the second serve and just worked on it because that is his biggest weakness. He's got a great forehand. His backhand's coming along nicely. His first serve is excellent when it's consistent. But his second serve is the biggest weakness in his game at the moment.
2: Um, we're well, just going to quickly talk on the women's game, actually. Um, you did bring it up. And um, you're, interesting actually, you were talking about... Uh, maturity of, of these players and uh, Eugenie Bouchard making the final she is 20 and it's kind of uh, goes against your uh, theory a little bit there Tom but uh, she no, didn't win though, I, don't so.
1: know. I, I would say that uh, 20 <coughs> matches where Sharapova was a decade ago, yeah, 17 yeah. Yeah. I think that's the comparison to draw, look she's a fantastically talented player, there's, there's no question about that, I think or oh, I'm surprised that so many people have warmed to her Um, Because, to me, she comes across as a very um, determined but quite callous and cold individual. I don't mean it in a bad way. It's obviously that she's very focused and focused on one thing. But I I, I don't know whether there's much warmth there, to be honest with you. Even when she got to the final, the Wimbledon final, and she got asked by Rishi Passad afterwards, how does it feel? She was just like, well, it's what I've been working for so uh, I, and I, uh, that's her that's her in a nutshell and I actually wouldn't be surprised if she went and won the US if you look at what she's done well this
2: year she's been fantastic I'm sure you come on to it she made the semi-finals of Australian and French
1: obviously near the final at Wimbledon um, previously her best at Grand grandson
2: was third round
1: yeah uh, but I think it's a progression within that semi-final Australia like you say she was totally overawed by the by the situation Went to Roland Garros, came up against, uh, Garros, should I say, came against Sharapova and on another day would have beaten her. Uh, and then got overall totally in her first Grand Slam final by Kvitova. Uh No surprise actually that Petra won, I, I think. But mm. moving to Flushing Meadows, I think it's the next stage. If she learns from this experience and carries everything she's taken this year, then she she's going to actually be one of the favourites for that event in Flushing Meadows in August. End of but, I mean,
2: particularly with the the fall uh, from well, very much a fall from grace. I know she was a bit ill this week, but Serena Williams uh, struggling. Uh, seems like it's she's come to the end of uh, an era. I would say personally. Um, you look like you're about to disagree with me. So
1: no, I, no, I, I I think it's hard to work out the the Serena. It's a conundrum at the moment, really, because on her day, she can beat anybody on the women's game, and by a comfortable margin, she could double bagel most female players six love, six love, uh, every week if she wanted to. Uh, I don't doubt that the desire, the desire is obviously there. I just maybe she has reached a stage where she's now just thinking she's won everything that you can win, and it's more about her perfection. There was a statement from her coach at the start of the year that the target was to go undefeated throughout a season because she now does pick and choose the events she goes to so she's not constantly on the tour Mm. so the argument was to see if she could go a whole season and beat it and I think that that kind of perfection you see it on court she gets very hard and and heavy on herself and then she becomes tight and with a game built on power if you start becoming tight um, you're going to miss lines you're going to hit balls deep you're going to hit balls long uh, and again, I think it' a bit like what you said earlier, Jay, with the um, men's game. I don't think many females fear her no. anymore. They know what she's about, and if she comes out and plays her best tennis, they understand that they're going to be beaten by her. But they they all now know and know when to sense when she's off her game, and when they see the door open, they're starting to attack her, and that's where she's becoming vulnerable. Yes, it's it's interesting. Again, looking forward to the hard
2: court season. Uh, We're going to have to move on. We're going to move to cricket. I know you guys (laughs) will be pleased to hear. Um, We've got a first test. Uh, We'll be at Trent Bridge on Thursday. England against India. First of a five-test series. First five-test series for India over in England in a a very long time. So 100 years or so, isn't it? Um, What do we make of the... Well, we talked very briefly about the squad last week, but um, what are we expecting the side to be? and um how confident are we going into this this test series as uh you yeah, know particularly looking at an india side as well
0: yeah i th- i actually think i read a really, really interesting article today about you know comparatively where the england team are and where the indian team are and you know they're relatively similar places really india have lost an awful lot of superstars that you know you, you don't need to go to too much length to um you know you know people like tendulkar they're going to leave huge holes and they're very hard to fill but you know they're very much in a transitional stage as well. You know their their lack of international standard fast bowlers is you know something that people like Alastair Cook would be pretty pleased to see the form he's in at the moment. Um, but you know it's hard to be it's hard to be um, full of confidence after the, after the series we've just seen. Um, you know Donny's the sort of captain who's going to be on the front foot, or at least try to be on the front foot for a lot of that series. Um,
2: and if they can, he they does can like p- throwing up a few weird little.
0: Uh... Uh, decisions
2: he's come and on and had a bowl
0: and gave, I mean you know this is all yeah. yeah I mean I just think his style is very different to Cook but you know they, if they if they think they can pinch a result early in that series um, you know they they may well fancy themselves I think a draw is a great result for India I'll come out and say that now I think if they come out with a draw that's brilliant considering where we're starting as well Trent Bridge uh, you know people like Anderson and Broad will be licking their lips there I think Anderson's re- uh, record there is phenomenal so I uh, you know you'd back England um But I think it's just going to be interesting from a development point of view to see how, you know, whether players like Ali can can carry on their form.
2: Are we expecting him to play?
1: Yeah, uh, having followed it quite closely, I think it would be very... I think for the balance of the side, Moeen has to play. Uh, I think it is slightly harsh on Jordan. He's likely to be the one to miss out for stokes there's no way they would have not that they there's no way that stokes doesn't play come wednesday basically that the reason he wasn't selected for the second test was because they wanted him to go away and play a bit more cricket coming back from um his uh, hand injury he went away um excellent bowling figures of 10 for in a match scored a few runs not masses of runs but scored runs so he has been picked to play so i think jordan will be the one to miss out However, I think what the the Sri Lankan series showed was that you cannot expect Anderson and Broad to get through a five-match test series in six and a half weeks now. They will not be able to play back-to-back games, particularly if the decks continue to be quite flat and slow, as they have been, because they will just tire and tire quickly. So rotation is going to be an important thing here. So I think you look at, um, and I include Wokes in this, Wokes, Stokes, Jordan... Broad, Anderson, um, and Plunkett, Plunkett will be in a rotation pattern. I think that this is where we're going to start to see a need for England to rotate and they realise that if Broad and Anderson are going to play that they're no longer going to be of a position where they can play week in, week out, bowl at 110% and and really give their all. There's going to have to be a rest period. Whether they like it or not, um, i watching some stuff from Stuart Broad this week. He was... Very keen to stand up against rotation, but I don't think England have a choice in, in, in at this point because they cannot afford an Anderson or a Broad to break down. Because then it really does leave the bowling attack very inexperienced.
0: And we've, I, I completely agree with you on that. Um, I think that lack of a, a true spin option, where you're going to get maybe 30, you know upwards of thirty overs out of a day, you know, it doesn't give it doesn't give you the option to you know play those guys. Continuously through the summer, so you know we spoke right at the start of the season about how England would approach, you know, the the structure of their bowling attack throughout the summer, and you know they're going to have to play to their strengths and and seam, you know, the seam attack and the options we have is our strength at the moment. So it would be interesting to see sort of where they play which bowler. Really, I mean, you'd expect Trent Bridge to very much suit, um, you know, your Andersons um, and and Stokes. You know, Stokes swings the ball at that pace. Um, and I don't know how much footage you saw from his uh, performance in his last championship game, but his bowling was phenomenal. Um, just, you know, it's, he's, he does not get, as a batsman, he doesn't give you much that you don't have to play. He's always asking you questions, um, you know, on, on flat
2: pitches. You need someone who keeps coming all day. So is Jordan the one to miss out in this in this first match?
1: I, I think say. he is. I, yeah. I, I think he is, which is very hard on him because I think he offers England a lot, not just as a bowling option, uh, and let's not forget, he okay, he went wickless, wicketless in that second innings against Sri Lanka, but he actually didn't bowl that badly. He bowled all right. Um, but Plunkett has really taken on the enforcer role. So uh, Jordan is the one to, but I think he offers with a bat. He certainly offers a second slip, which could become a great huge, slipper, yeah. yeah, great slipper. So uh, look, it's still early in development, and it should actually really be seen as a, an exciting, positive thing that. England are generating a battery of quicks. You can talk about consistency, but with the amount of cricket that has been played now, to start to build and grow a squad together, yeah. particularly in the bowling ranks, bodes well for the World Cup in the winter. And then uh, you obviously have the Ashes next summer. It's
2: huge, isn't it? And and like I say, it's, it's, it's promising that even though he's played all right, that he's going to have to still work even harder to get into that team and, and stay in it and... Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting now. It's it's a squad rather than, um, rather than a base of, of eleven, twelve, thirteen players. Looking at more, um, still going to be the same top six, though I assume. Um, Cook's got to perform, hasn't he? He really has to perform. Um, I, I don't want to make it the Alistair Cook show because we talk about it every, every week. But um, okay, Tom, I haven't asked you about Alistair Cook. Uh, what what are your thoughts on his form of the last year and? How long
1: is he going to last until he has to be dropped? Look, he's not going to be dropped. That's the, you, you have to get your head around that. But the ECB have made a commitment, and this is all includes the KP stuff and all of that. They have made a commitment that this is the Alistair Cook era. This is the Alistair Cook regime, so to speak. Well, what if he averages 15 so, in a series? But I think... If they continue to lose games, and this is the problem this is a problem; less of this would be talked about if England were winning test matches and what you You mustn't forget is Cook is someone who's taken an England team to India and won only two other captains can talk about doing that ever. He's won an ashes series, he's been part of some very successful England teams, and he scored a lot of runs. personally, I think he is a score away. I think if he goes and gets a score early in this series. It won't be talked about. But he's going to be put under the spotlight the more he doesn't score runs. And when he doesn't score runs, his captaincy is put under the spotlight. And his captaincy is not very good. He's a reactive captain. I, 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 I don't think he's aggressive enough. I don't think he grasps everything enough. But it all stems back to the fact he's not scoring runs. I personally don't think he's been in touch probably since the middle of last summer. Oh, he's not scored a century since last time well, against New Zealand. Yeah, um but I I was fortunate enough to see a few a few clips of his uh early season form for Essex. And yes he scored some runs, but it wasn't the cook that everyone knows. And things in his life have changed. He's got a young baby now, wife as well, so there's there's a lot going on. I think if England get off to a poor start, though, there's going to be a clamour for him to go. But it's going to be very much on him as to whether he resigns. The ECB won't be removing him any time soon.
2: Intriguing. Okay, I I still think that should we lose this series and he doesn't get a score at all, I think personally, I think that'll be a time where they'll have some serious discussions because, quite frankly, they've got to put they've got to get something right, mm-hmm. and and you can't wait for years.
1: You, you can't, but. Um we were talking um in the green room prior to coming coming on air about the whole prior situation. Let's bring it on to a Cook situation. Where's the ready made captaincy replacement? There isn't one. There is no captain in that team other than Cook at the moment. England would love to see the proactive Ian Bell that Ian Bell has shown when he's captain Warwickshire, but he's a much more reserved guy in the England setup, so they can't really get that out of him. And I think they're really someone like a a broad that they've experimented with 2020. I think they're put off giving a bowler the the role after seeing what Flintoff did in in 2007. Um, And Root, who is probably the natural successor, is so far away from being ready to be a captain. He's not even guaranteed of his place at the moment that... There is no option. Tell me where the other option is right now for England. If Cook was to turn around tomorrow, oh, there isn't. That
2: was that. I mean, that's what we we've been discussing. Sounds a bit bleak, doesn't it? Yeah, but anyway, yeah. Let's 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 bring it positive light. I mean, that like you say, there are weaknesses for uh, for this India side as well. They've lost quite a few players. Again, they're going in transition. Their their bowling attack, particularly the seamers, look all right. But there's yeah, the, there's nothing which England really should be fearing. Uh, particularly on these, yeah, you know, Trent Bridge, particularly in the first test. Um,
0: but we've, you know, we've said that before. We've, you know, you wouldn't have looked at that Sri Lankan attack and and worried too much about it before that series. But you know what? I think what was shown was, if you know, when England are chasing big totals, um, you know they can they can make a fairly mediocre test seam attack look pretty good. Um, Mohammed Shami. I don't know how much you guys have seen of him. This sort of new, pacey, bustling seamer that India have brought along. Um, I think he's got a lot more, lot more to him than Ishant Sharma has. I think he he will be able to cause problems, especially at places like Trent Bridge. Um, but the important thing is keeping the key players from India's point of view quiet. People like Kohli, we've seen Pujara make a hell of a lot of runs against England before, and you know they're technically fantastic players. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting to, to sort of bring this all back to Cook and sort of what needs to happen. I mean, you know, have we seen a difference? I mean, I know Tom, you followed it pretty closely. In his captaincy, when he's scoring runs, you know, is there a difference? You know, is he does he tend to be more proactive when he's scoring runs himself?
1: I wouldn't say so, no. But then I think the difference is if Cook scores runs, the team are generally in a better position, yeah. and that I think that's the difference. When he doesn't score runs, they're generally on the back foot, and I think that. When Anderson spoke before Sri Lanka, series, he was right to some extent that the senior players hadn't stood up for a few games and he'd always been been cut adrift. But sometimes I feel, and it's been said by lots of other people in the media before, that he almost is a captain by numbers. It's Anderson bowls eight overs, Broad Bowl six comes off, uh and it's almost a scripted thing and he doesn't know how to react to it, which I find very strange for a guy who's played so much cricket at the highest level. So I I, I don't know. Coming on to India, India interests me. I, I'm not convinced that Duncan Fletcher has got it right, actually. Um, a fantastic piece uh, by George DeBell on ESPN Cricket Info about pitches and, and what to expect. What you find is that and this goes totally against um, England, really, is the fact that the clubs now and the teams, because it costs so much to have a test match, put a test match on, they've got to make games last four or five days to make it financially viable. There's been disasters up at Headingley financially for them bidding on international cricket, which means as much as you talk about preparing green seamers for England, you're not going to see them again because the um counties need to make games last four or five days so they're going to produce slower flatter decks which is what that all pitches in England are moving to and that actually is quite subcontinental which is a concern because the likes of Kohli and Pujara who i think generally could be the next two great indians they could not they'll never be a tendulkar but they could rival a Dravid and, and and Ganguly and Sehwag in the runs they score they've got that much talent you know, they could be putting on big totals. But I'm not sure England, uh, sorry, India have got their bowling attack right. They've brought over seven seamers, I think. And they've only got two spinners. And actually, with the forecast, you look at the forecast over the next six weeks, seven weeks, yes, there's going to be showers, but it's also going to be very hot and dry. And if these wickets start to take spin, I'm not convinced India have got the They don't have a great spinner at the moment, but I don't think they've got a spinner who's capable really of damage in England or not enough Ashwin's good but he's not great so I, I, I'm not sure they've actually got their selection quite right and it will be interesting to see how they start I think the, the key stat obviously is they've not won a test match away since 2011 from home they not? so wow. that's quite a mental thing but what people forget about the um, 4-0 whitewash of three years ago uh, when they came to England was for the first test and a half, it was seriously competitive cricket. I remember covering that series and it, it was high-quality test match cricket. And then at Trent Bridge, funnily enough, mm-hmm. uh, it all turned. You had the the bell run out, non-run out at T when Doney reinstated him at T. And then you had Stuart Broad take the hat-trick. And that turned the series on the, on on the spin of a coin and the last two tests were, were non-events. The Indians practically, their heads were shot to pieces. So for anyone thinking that this is going to be England's to win, I, I think it's interesting to see where India are at at the moment. They haven't played a lot of test cricket either for a couple of years. They've played a lot of one-day cricket. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly they'll start. But it, from my perspective, it'll be a really interesting competitive series. And it, it's one of those that could easily be a 2-1 either way. Okay. I th- I think sure. you've
0: made a great point there that um you know I think five five tests is where your mettle as a side and as a test cricketer is going to be well put to the test for want of a better phrase. And none of that Indian team have played a five test series before I think. That's a really interesting really? statistic. <laughs> wow. Whereas you look around that England side you've got Ashes winners, guys who have taken part in those long series. Um and to an extent knows what it takes physically and mentally to come through that and maintain your standards throughout. You know, you said when we saw India here in 2011, the first two, perhaps even three games were really tough and England had to fight hard. I think we came out of that as the number one team. That was the sort of end of our um, you know, rise, to, rise to that level. And the, and the last two games, they completely capitulated. If they, if they want to come away from England with a win or a draw in this series, they can't afford to do that. Um, and you'd, you'd like to think that someone like Fletcher, who's been around international cricket for a long time, would be drumming that into them, that you've got to look at the long game in,
2: in this series, yeah, you do, and I I can't call it at all. I'm just looking forward to five test matches, it's gonna be fantastic. Um, before we go, because uh, we've uh just about run out of time, but before we go, uh, interesting comments over the weekend from Mr. Andrew Strauss on air, um, regarding uh Kevin Peterson. Now, uh, what you told me, are we allowed to, are we allowed to allegedly, yeah, if we chuck it's, some yes, allegedly in there, can we? This has been churned
0: out of of the the rumor mill so okay go for Um. it Um, so
2: i mean obviously let's just explain that andrew strauss uh he was uh taken was the mcc match was it yes mcc he was commentating on that uh a lot of these these commentary um bits they they broadcast across uh, the Globe, and he, he was on an ad break uh, during the the British coverage, but he was still on air for Fox Sports over in Australia. I yeah, think. so
1: the so, so the yeah. what they call the world feed was still still running, so the mics was still live. Uh, the comment was made, and look it up. Uh, we'll tweet it. We'll tweet a link to it. Um, so yeah, it's <laughs> it's, it, it's it. Look, it's a regrettable incident from Australia's point of view. Uh, there's no doubt about that, and I. I do wonder whether Sky will be able to keep him in his position it's a, a huge call to keep him in mm. the role he is now having made a comment like that and there's no doubt that he said it because he quickly apologised on there afterwards so there's no grey line did he not, did he say it he said it Yeah. I, I think if if you're going to ask does it have an impact on the KP thing look, I, you're not going to know from KP until October, once all the injunctions are out of the way there's no court Injunction, I not wait to read his book. The, the book will come out and it will all be turned out again. And that's the point that everyone is waiting to. Mm. Um, and that's the end of it, really.
2: Yeah. I mean, what, what, what was it, the the comments regarding? Uh... This
0: Is this was, as I say, this could be an absolute fabrication. So it's almost not worth mentioning. But supposedly it was alluding to um, an incident that happened in 2012 in South Africa over. James Taylor, who's a pretty minuscule... Uh minuscule man was scratched around and made thirty against, you know, the likes of Stain and Morkel. Um was really battling. Whilst Peterson was going
1: okay at the other end and supposedly Peterson had come in and um so actually scored probably one of the best hundreds by an England English batsman in Test cricket for years, so it yeah. was that good.
0: Yeah, so he was obviously feeling pretty comfortable and came in and made a remark something to um along the lines of Taylor being one of the worst players he'd ever seen representing England. It was supposedly alluding to the fact that that showed that he was um, well, what
2: Strauss called him anyway, but it mm. could be complete rubbish. But. Who knows? Who knows? We'll find out in October, won't we? Um, just uh, another note as well. Uh, Tour de France uh, began over the weekend. Um, well, I we don't think we have time to talk this evening, but uh, I did uh, speak to uh, cycling uh, freelance writer Simon Wicks, and uh, that'll be up as a podcast, a little separate Little one about the uh, the popularity of the sport and um, load of people coming out to watch and uh, and even partake in, in cycling. So it seems to be going from strength to strength uh, in the country. Um, okay, I think that's all we've got time for. Cheers, Jim. Cheers, me. Cheers, Tom, for joining us. Tom Jackson. Oh, thank you very thank much. much. Thank you very much. Enlightening stuff <laughs> to, about Wimbledon and obviously uh, everything that's going on in cricket at the moment. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can email us shortishport at gmail dot com. You can tweet us as well at sportslicorish and that's about it from us. What have we got next week, this is liquor All Sports on Shortage Radio.